Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Michael. Welcome to Last Stop to Nowhere, our podcast about Australian history. This episode is part two of The Wreck of the Batavia, where we're talking about the circumstances that led up to our first European inhabitants and our first European structures, namely the bloody mutiny and wreck of the Dutch East India Company vessel, the Batavia, off the coast of Geraldton in 1628. When we last left off, uh, one of the survivors of the shipwreck, Geronimus Cornelizoon, a seemingly mild-mannered apothecary from the Netherlands, had taken control of the island that the vessel had wrecked on and had embarked on this dictatorial, murderous regime. This week we're picking up where we left off, going into exactly how he ruled this island and how he drove people to commit these acts of atrocity. Right, so as, as Carl said, everything on the island has now reached fever pitch. There, there's been open murders. Everyone knows that Geronimus does not have their best interest at heart, and uh, their only hope of salvation for the survivors who are on Batavia's graveyard is this idea of a rescue boat coming back with Pelsart and Jacob. So they've taken the ship's only vessel, they've set out on a course for Indonesia, and the survivors are desperately hoping they'll be able to come back with a rescue party. Now, uh, Pulsat and Jacobs, as we've already gone through, they have a lot of trouble getting on on a big boat. Now they're trapped together on a small boat. Uh, but surprisingly, because they're both going to be in big trouble when they get back. I mean, that, that's probably the easiest way of putting it. They do cooperate for the voyage. So it's, it's, like, a, this. it's like a 300-mile trip to the principal's office that they're taking. Uh, but they don't discuss their stories, though. The whole time Pulsat's jotting down in this journal sort of all the things he's going to say in his defense. Uh, Jacobs, we don't know what he was thinking at the time. I think he was probably just concentrating on steering this boat thousands of miles to Indonesia. The funny thing is, is that the shipwreck has really acted like a bit of a bit of a wake-up call to Jacobs. When it initially does wreck, he manages to put aside his animosity with Pelsart, and he, he actually makes himself very useful in ferrying people off this boat. And uh, the actual trip that he's leading to Indonesia, it's it's not necessarily thought of as impossible, but in, in a boat like that, with uh, with that many people as yeah, well, and without much food and water, it's it's definitely a really sort of heroic journey to attempt. I say it's probably his finest moment. I mean, given everything we've discussed so far about him as being like getting drunk, making scenes, running away from survivors of the boat that he was steering, mm. this is the moment where he he kind of goes above and beyond. So basically, Pelsant and Jacobs they steer a course straight for the Australian coast. They follow it up as close as they as they can, and they follow that all the way up to Indonesia. Now, on the third of July. Uh, Pelsart and Jacobs reach Indonesian waters and they make contact with a Dutch East India vessel called the Sardam. They get on board, they tell everybody what happened and then they are basically told, quick, get to Batavia as soon as you can and uh, we'll rustle up a rescue party. The other thing that the crew of the Sardam tell them is you better get ready and have a very good story about how this happened because the guy waiting on the other end for Jacobs and, and Pelsart is a man named John Cohen. Now, John Cohen is... He's actually my favorite character of this whole thing. I'm just going to go on a limb and say it. So what rank, what rank is he? What uh, position does he good hold? Good question. He's the governor general of the, of the Indies. So he's the highest Dutch official of the East India Company in the area. So he's got control over Dutch settlements in Indonesia, India, their trading factory near Nagasaki in Japan. And uh, because of the amount of time it takes for news to get back to the 17 gentlemen, the board of directors of the East India Company back in the Netherlands, he's sort of the de facto king. Now, John Cohen, just to give you an idea of uh, what kind of guy he was, in 1621, John Cohen attempted to invade China with eight ships and 1,000 men. Now, he got as far as Macau, which was run by the Portuguese at the time. Uh, they told him, well, I'm not sure what they told him, but presumably it was China. It's a really big country. You're going to need a bigger boat than that. So he turned around and went back to Batavia. 
But he joined the company very early in his life. He was distinguished because of his incorruptibility. He was severely austere, incredibly religious, and uh, relatively incorruptible. So he was promoted quite rapidly. And he actually founded the colony of Batavia in 1619. He burnt down the Indonesian city that was there before, which is called Jaktra, and I think later became Jakarta, and uh, founded Batavia over the smoldering ruins. As well, another thing we should mention about him, there's a scandal that is involved in, in uh, 1623 where the English attempt to open a factory. So a factory is basically a trading headquarters. The English attempt to open a factory on the island of Ambon. Chang Cohen doesn't take kindly to this. So he beheads about 15 English citizens who are traders there, uh, and he beheads them using samurai who is recruited in where Japan. Where did he get samurai? Uh, the, the Dutch, they pioneered early trade with Japan, and uh, they got uh, privileges where they could found a small trading post, and he just hired a lot of samurai. Um, and yeah, he would use them as sort of, they were used as basically mercenary guards, because a lot of the, the sort of soldiers they bought from the Netherlands would die of tropical illness, so to replace them, it was quicker to go and hire Samurais who didn't have masters or ronin from Japan rather than wait eight months for the next bunch of degenerate war veterans to come over from, from Europe. So basically, yeah, that, that caused a huge international incident and uh, he got recalled. So the UK government sent a diplomatic note to the Netherlands and were like, we're not even at war. Why, who is this guy? Why is he beheading our, our people, our employees of the uh, English East India Company? So John Cohen was recalled to the Netherlands, but um, as soon as he left, sort of everything started falling apart. He was the one person who was so severe and so terrifying that he kept both the company's armies and also the local sultans in Indonesia and also the rival companies of different European powers and the Mughal Empire and the Japanese uh, shogunate. He's the only person who sort of kept them on good terms with the East India Company. As soon as he left, everyone started moving on their turf. Um, so he's sort of indispensable. I should also mention, as well as attempting to invade China with not nearly enough men, uh, Cohen, he also conquered an island uh, for the only purpose, he expressed the only purpose of cornering the world's supply of nutmeg, which uh, he was successful at. He sounds like a James Bond villain. He is hes a terrifying man. He's a terrifying, terrifying man. Having to go back to him and explain that you've screwed up, I, it's not. Pelsant must have been absolutely panicking. Now, uh, just to give you an idea of what he was like to deal with, uh, here's a letter that he wrote back to the 17 gentlemen, so the board of directors uh, of this company, who, who are his bosses. Uh, and he's talking about he wants more women to be sent to Batavia. Uh, and he says, You, sirs, would only send us the scum of the land, and people here will sell us none but scum either. He's talking about women here. Send us young girls, and we shall hope that things will go better. He's looking for wives for company merchants. He did things like he'd imported uh, slaves from India to serve as wives for the employees of the company. He sent agents out to scour Dutch orphanages for young women without uh, parents. Well, I guess after hiring samurai, any kind of person you buy is going to be a little disappointing. He, he was good with the outside hires. He got very, yeah, he was very adventurous in the type of people he'd, he'd bring on board. So this is the guy that uh, Pelsard is going to come crawling back to, saying that he has lost the crown jewel in the... Uh, in the empire of the Dutch East India Company. It's going to be a tough, a tough meeting. Pretty much uh, Pelsart and Jacobs, they hitch a lift on that ship that they've run into. As they sail into the Indonesian harbour, uh, the week before that, there's been an incident where John Cohen, one of his rivals, is a guy named Jack Spex. He's just a, just a high-up merchant in the company. Now, uh, Spex has a daughter who is half Japanese. Her name is Sarah Spex. Now, Sarah Spex is found in the governor's bed in Batavia uh, with a 15-year-old boy. It's sort of this big sex scandal Pretty much it was sort of, she was 12, he was 15. Uh, they both wanted to get married. There was sort of, it was like a Romeo and Juliet romantic thing, uh, even though she's 12. Cohen's response to this kind of youthful romance is he beheads the boy and he has Sarah Specs whipped publicly in the town square, which is a huge scandal. He actually wanted to drown her, but was uh, talked out of it. 
So this is um, John Cohen's uh, kind of rival, who's also sort of on an equal level in the company as, as him. And this guy is coming back from Japan pretty soon. Everybody is waiting with bated breath for this huge anticipated, this huge kind of fight that's looming where Jack Spector's going to come back and be, well, why did you whip my daughter? John Cohen's going to be like, well, I actually want to drown her, but I got talked out of it. And Pelsart comes in in the middle of this to say, I've lost $20 million of your money and also an irreplaceable ship. And also I ran away from everybody and left them there to drown. And uh, also there was this, I think there was a mutiny or something going on in my ship beforehand before we crashed. So a tough gig, tough interview. How does he go? Does he talk his way out of it? Uh, he gets a second chance, yes. Uh, Cohen, luckily enough, uh, once upon a time when Cohen was on one of his voyages back to Batavia, he came quite close to running into Hootman's Abrojos himself. So the same massive rocks where the Batavia was wrecked. Uh, Cohen, his ship nearly ran aground. They were lucky because it was during the day and they could steer away. So he was surprisingly sympathetic, and he gives Pelsart uh, a mission. He says, I'll give you a rescue vessel, I'll give you divers, I want you to go back, rescue as many people as you can, and uh, also more importantly, get me all the money from the wreck, which is now sort of in this shallow reef. I want you to fish up all the barrels, fish up everything you can find. And uh, as well, Pelsart, he kind of escapes blame too by pushing it all onto Jacobs. This is kind of the end of the road for Jacob. So after he's sort of redeemed himself uh, in managing to get Pelsart and the 48 survivors they went with from these uh, from this outcrop of rocks back to uh, civilization, he's managed to do that, but his reward for that is uh, they throw him in a deep, dark cell for his role in this mutiny, which Pelsart is now aware of, uh, that they were planning. So you remember at the time, uh, Lucretia, the, the woman on board, was attacked, and there was kind of this... Uh, she was smeared with dung and everything like that. Um, she recognized the voices of one of her attackers and told Pelsart. And Pelsart, and he was one of the people who was on that boat heading back for rescue. So Pelsart tells the governor, this guy, this guy on the ship was involved. They torture him. He gives up Jacobs and they throw Jacobs into a hole in the ground. So Pelsart has kind of weaseled his way out of it slightly, although it's not a good look. He's lost a ship. He almost had a mutiny. But at this stage, nobody knows anything about the murders happening on the island. It's just a normal shipwreck with a bit of mutiny possibly thrown into the mix. Okay, so Pelsart's about to head back home to the Abrolhos, and he's thinking, you know, if I can save these people, I mean, I left them with about 200 people alive on these islands, I'll just go back, pick them up, swing by the wreck, dredge up my uh, treasure chests, and then I'll basically uh, be home and host. So Pelsat is having, uh, is trying to explain himself to the management of the company, to his bosses in Indonesia, particularly to one boss, John Cohen, who's terrifying. Uh, what's happening back on the island, Kyle? So it was about this time uh, when we go back to that scene at the very start of episode one, where we talk about Geronimus calling the clerk, Salomon de Champs, into his office, uh, into the little palace he's set up, and ordering him to strangle the baby. Now, something we, we didn't mention at that time, but which I'll mention now is that this wasn't Geronimus's first attempt to kill the baby. In fact, he had actually, in a rare display of trying to get his own hands dirty at this stage, uh, he'd actually requested the baby to be sent to him, and then he had given it poison. Uh, now, as an apothecary, poison was one of his main duties. The chemists of towns were expected to whip up poisons to control the 
uh, vermin in the city, the rat population. So he dosed it with this poison that he had in his uh, apothecary kit. That didn't do the trick. Uh, he didn't manage to kill it with poison. So that's when he makes the little noose and he gets the champs into his office to order him to kill so, the baby. So hold on, hold on. Wait, he's a chemist, but he can't even poison a baby. Yeah, this this goes back to him just being very sloppy. He's just a really sloppy individual with his personal life. And while we've said that he's smart, and that's certainly accurate to a degree, he, he's really just kind of a mess in many ways. It seems like there's these odd gaps kind of in his capabilities where, yeah, we went through at the start, he signed up because he didn't have any, any prospects left in the Netherlands. Everything had gone wrong for him. And, you know, suddenly he's kind of got this Svengali-like hold over all these survivors who are doing everything he says, including killing babies. But and he can't even poison... But that's his job. His job is to yeah, deal and, with... Yeah, and that sort of makes us think more about his collapsing business as an apothecary back home, you know, separated from his glib kind of persuading demeanor. How good was he? Uh, but one thing which isn't in dispute is is the power that he held over people. So... Cornell Azun goes to his old friend, the predicant, the churchman, and he politely informs him that there are to be no more prayer services on the island. His time as a minister is now officially over. Uh, he also informs him that his daughter, the predicant's eldest daughter, he had eight children, is going to marry one of the mutineers. That same night, he also informs Lucretia Yarns, who survived the shipwreck, that she will now be living with him. Cornelius has got he's got a very large tent where all the uh, golden valuables that have washed up from the ship are kept, and he kind of lives in there wearing Pelsart's clothes with all these fine tapestries around, all these sort of pieces of art that were originally going to be sent to the Mughal court to be traded. They're being displayed in his cabin, so he's kind of got this beautiful setup there. So everything's going pretty grimly on Batavia's graveyard when he invites the predicant, who's the preacher, and his daughter to dinner. While he does this, uh, Stonecutter Peters calls to another mutineer and says, Come, you must help me with a pleasant outing. You must put the predicant's folk out of the way. They kill the preacher's wife and his six children. So the, so the priest and his daughter having dinner with Cornelius, meanwhile the rest of the family is being murdered in their tent. And that's pretty much modus operandi classy. for Geronimus. Very classy. By this time, everyone must have known what an invitation to dinner meant. But again, they were just sort of... They seem powerless to upset this grand story that Geronimus is weaving. I think it would be hard to tell as well who's actually a mutineer or not, because there's people who Geronimus is close to who are part of the original conspiracy. There's people who he's recruited on the island. He makes complicit. He makes them murder other survivors in exchange for their own life. And like uh, Deschamps, the, the clerk, he's someone who's at least kind of on side with the mutineers or considered to be. He's not considered to be innocent. So it sort of must be hard. Like, all the survivors are in isolation. It's very, it's very very muddled. Because at any point, you might either be murdered or called upon to do a murder. After, after this dinner where the predicant's family is, is slaughtered, he was used as kind of a slave to mind the boat that the mutineers were in charge of. He writes in his journal, Every day it was, what shall we do with that man? The one would decapitate me, the other poison me. A third said, let him live a little longer. We might make use of him to persuade the folk on the other land to come over to us. And every night I said to my daughter, you have to look tomorrow morning to see if I've been murdered. They went on murdering so long that only a few were left. The next day, De Vries, who was the man that they took out to drown but then didn't, Canelazun convenes his council together 
and him and the council decide that there's not enough rations to go around. They're still acting with the pretense of government. So they're still having their council meetings and they're still making policy for the whole island. They're still sort of got that fig leaf of legitimacy. So he says, we don't have enough rations to go around. We need you to cut the throat of 11 sick and injured people. So his solution is just murder all the sick. But also, and this is very much a pattern with Geronimus, not just murder people, force other people to murder other people. That was his big game. So he gets this one guy, which he took out to kill, made the guy watch everyone else die, then spared him at the last minute. And now that he's back on the island, he's getting this guy to be his tool, uh, to be his his murderer. So he gets he forces him to cut the throat of around 11 injured and sick. All the women that he hasn't killed or hasn't sent to different islands, he sets up a communal tent uh, in the middle of Batavia's graveyard where it's basically the rape tent. Um, he marries off some of the women to... Uh, he marries off uh, yeah, the predicant's daughter to one of his lieutenants, uh, but everybody else kind of goes into that tent and, um, yeah, just if you're a male mutineer and you want to have sex with them, you just go in there and it's sort of... He kind of uses that as a currency, so he'll reward his favourite mutineers for murders by letting them go into the tent for a while. The one woman who mm. was not in this tent was Lucretia Yarns. Uh, he still had a very powerful fixation on her. Well, we mentioned before, like on the on the voyage, everyone's trying to hit on Lucretia with with no success, including Pelsart and Jacobs. But we didn't say what Cornelius was. So you, so he sort of had a was carrying a uh, ca- holding a candle for her as well. It seems so. Apparently, it didn't come out much during the voyage. But when they crash, he immediately invites her to live with him. He sort of, in inverted commas, saves her from the other mutineers by really sort of decreeing that she's not to be touched. And in fact, when a survivor, when the survivor that they coerced into killing the sick people, when he was found talking with Lucretia, just exchanging a couple of words... He was put to death uh, immediately afterwards. So, and this is the guy who originally, he was on a raft with four people. They drowned three. They spared him. They're like, all right, kill some babies for us. Kill some sick people. He did that. And then so he sort of survived their challenge. And then right at the very end, he said hello to Lucretia Johns and was killed instantly for it. Yeah, he was, he was put to death for that. Everything is definitely going uh, Geronimus's way until July 9, when incredibly he actually sees these smoke signals from the island where he sent those soldiers to. So the furthest, furthest island, they don't have a boat. He's just left them there, but they've found water. So he said, you know, light a fire if you find water, suckers. <laughs> but he thought they would have been dead by now of dehydration. Uh, but they've actually managed to do it. They've found water, and now they're gesturing to everyone uh, to come over because there's no other sources of water on these islands. They are just waiting for rain. So after they see these smoke signals... The people on Trader's Island, uh, which is that tiny little yacht-making club that he made... Led by the sheriff. So yep. the sheriff sees the smoke signals, and he's like, yep, got to get over there. So all the people on Trader's Island, they're like, oh, finally, you know, we've finally made these boats. Let's uh, put them to use. They r- start to row over to the high island where the smoke signals are. Zavank, Cornelis's, uh second in charge, gets sent out to intercept that boat, and just massacre everybody on it. Right, There's so sort of this race between this, the, the sheriff on the raft is trying to get to this, this island full of water and the mutineers are on another boat and they catch up with them and kill everybody on board, is that? Yeah, so they basically just... The people in that boat from Trader's Island that are heading out there, they see this other boat that's trying to catch up with them and they just think it's other people responding to the smoke signals. They've got no reason to fear yet. 
Right, so there are 15 people in this raft. They kill them all, and they kill them all in plain sight as well of the other survivors on Batavia's graveyard. And the people that do make it away from the raft who go to swim back to Batavia's graveyard, as soon as they make it to the shore, the other mutineers just kill them on the spot. Now two things have happened openly. People know there's water somewhere, but it's on the other side of the island where those soldiers are. They also know that the people on our island are just starting to murder everybody. At this point, there are about 110 people on Batavia's graveyard. Not for long. All right, so murder toll so far, we're, we're looking at about, I'm going to say 20. I'm going to say about 15 on the raft. Uh, we've lost a couple of a couple of people here and there. There's that other raft trip they took. There's a bad dinner party. So we'll, we'll call about 20. Okay, well, that's about to, that's about that's to increase. That's about to ramp up. Okay. Then on the um, 12th of July, two carpenters on the ship are accused of uh, stealing and they're killed by the mutineers. And the way that it goes, we've got a quote here which will give you some idea of what it must have been like, the climate of fear on the island. This is a quote from the trial. It says, The mutineers were called by Geronimus into his tent and they were ordered to cut the throats of two carpenters and a sick boy, whereupon they, together with David Zavank and others who were so ordered, so the mutineers and David Zavank, the second in command, they took a lamp and went into their tent They asked if they had any goods hidden there, and one of the carpenters said no. He answered weepingly. He begged that he might be allowed to say his prayers, because he thought that it would cost him his life. Zavank said, get on with it, and they threw the carpenter to the ground and cut his throat. The other carpenter bitterly begged for his life, whereupon Zavank and the others went to Geronimus and said that this guy, his name was Jacob, uh, Jacob was a good carpenter and he should be spared, but Geronimus answered, not at all. He might become a babbler. Whereupon they have gone back to the small tent and threw Jacob to the ground. They sat on his body and stabbed two knives to pieces on his breast and two knives on his throat, whereupon one mutineer handed another a knife, but he could not bring him to death, so that they at last cut his throat with a piece of rock and did likewise to the cabin boy. So we we see that unlike sort of the anarchy of the ship or the, the plot of the mutiny, this is really a different breed altogether of psychopathy. Like the way that all these, all of these people in the council and all of all of the murderers that is enlisted, slavishly go up to him for further orders and ask for clarification about exactly how they should murder people. If it was sort of just random thuggery or more passion fueled, it might be more understandable. But Geronimus is just so specific. Also, he doesn't get his hands dirty as well. He's ordering other people to do his dirty work. It's kind of this game of survivor when. When Geronimus votes you off the island, it, it sort of ends with you being you know, kind of stabbed to death or having your head knocked in with a rock or a club. Like, it's up close and it's quite brutal. So, towards uh, mid-July, Geronimus is very much entrenched in power on that little piece of dirt, Batavia's graveyard. So, they've been there for six weeks and uh, we're looking at... Uh, what's the death toll so far? We're, we're heading up into the... I think we're pushing the 30s now. Yeah, possibly possibly even 50, almost. Yeah, we're, we're averaging, I think uh, later they worked out, it's about an average of one murder every three days if you if you pull it out. So there's, there are some days that are murder-free, but uh, generally there's, there's a couple during the week. So around this time, Geronimus is sitting on his throne on this Batavia's graveyard, but he hasn't forgotten about the people on the other islands. And this is when we start to move to a different phase of this story, which is island versus island warfare. So while while he's ordering these murders, he's never forgotten about these soldiers who are over on what they call High Island, just across from them. 
so he knows that they've found water. He knows that there's enough food that they haven't died yet. And he knows that some survivors have managed to reach the soldiers and have probably told them exactly what's happening. So about this time, he starts making plays for the island. Uh, one of his first plays is he sends over one of his mutineers over to the soldiers' island with a letter written to the French soldiers. Now, you'll remember that the soldiers who were on the Batavia were a mixture of Dutch soldiers and a bunch of mercenaries who came from all over Europe. Well, mostly Germany, a couple of Dutch, like uh, Weber Hayes is Dutch. There was one English guy uh, as well, English soldier. Um, Joronis kills him a couple of days before the letter goes out. He knew there was a cell of French soldiers, and he knew that the language barrier meant that people who didn't speak Dutch would probably be his best bet in terms of recruiting, because they might not have an idea of what was going on. So he sends a letter to the French soldiers to turn against Webby Hayes. The letter goes, Beloved brothers and friends, the more we consider amongst ourselves your previous faithfulness and brotherly friendship, the more we wonder that you left willingly at the request of the merchant to survey the high island, do not return to bring us word, for we have always considered you our greatest and truest brothers and friends. Very, very nice introduction. And then he's sort of, you know, the hard part is how to explain all the murders. So he kind of tries to explain it in a way as a, as a bit of a misunderstanding. So he sort of, uh, he claims that uh, the people that he's killed were, uh, were thieves. So he's sort of got this very meandering self-justification, very long letter. But then at a certain point he says, Give unto our hands Lucas, the steward's mate, Cornelis, the fat trumpeter, another Cornelis. Cornelis the assistant, so third Cornelis. Def Jan Michels, Arian the gunner, Squinting Hendrik, Theonas Klaas, Cornelius Helmings, and other sailors who are with you. For they have in their possession unknown to you a compass in order thus to go secretly with a little boat to the highland. The merchant, who has a particular liking for and trust in Weber Hayes, wishes and requests that you should inform him secretly of this. So what he's trying to do is he's saying to the French soldiers who, are, who he thinks it could be potentially sympathetic to him, he's saying... He's naming all the people who are slightly weaker on that island. So he's saying the French soldiers... As well as the refugees from his own island. True, the ones that got away. He's saying they're actually guilty. They're plotting to escape and leave you. So you should give them back to me. Also, Weber Hayes I kind of like, so he's fine and you're fine. But why not just hand over all these weaklings to us and come over to our side? He's also saying that they secretly have this compass, which they're using to navigate around everywhere, and that they've stolen the compass. It's... It's very conspiratorial. He refers to himself in the letter, in the third person, as the merchant. And, yeah, the, this letter is basically immediately handed by the French guys to Weber Hayes, the soldier. They trust him a lot more, and they they have figured out what's happening on the other island. So Weber Hayes knows at the stage. Um, he kind of sees it as a gambit by Cornelius, and he kind of thinks, well, you know, if this subtle approach Cornelius is taking doesn't work, they're probably going to do a full frontal attack. So Weber Hayes starts fortifying the island that he's on. Now, we discussed earlier, it's a lot larger than Batavia's graveyard. It's also got a little bit of shelter, uh, a few kind of shrubs and trees and sort of high, higher hills. And importantly, it's also got wells as well. True. So fresh water. Um, they don't have anything else, though. They, they, they got dropped off with nothing. No weapons, no guns. So what are, the, what are they They've got they a few wallabies. Response? There's True, actually yeah. a few wallabies on this scrabbly little island. They don't have enough time to train them to, to attack the mutineers, yeah. though. So they've, they've got to improvise. <laughs> untrained wallabies. Untrained wallabies. But... Uh, they do eat them, and that's a lot of a better diet than the people on Batavia's graveyard are having. They're still having to snag whatever birds they can. Actually, that's a good point. They're physically fitter. Most of them are actually soldiers, and as well as that, they've got forewarning. And because they've got this kind of height advantage, they can see anybody coming. So they post. They start posting sentries. They start also making, at this stage, um, they start making 
crude stone forts. So crushing up uh, limestone and stacking, almost sandbagging. Yeah. Making we we say crude enclosures. forts, but they're a hell of a lot better than what I could have done. Actually, yeah, come to think of it, crude, crude's the wrong word. It's like, it was a pretty solid effort. They, these, made, they made forts and weapons as well. They made the home, homemade weapons. These forts, uh, some of them are still there today. Yeah, They've photos. survived really 400 eerie. years. But mainly, they, they had to build this wall because they knew that on the other islands with the mutineers, they still had guns. So they knew that they had to shelter themselves from that. They knew that while they had the high land, they'd be very hard to kind of completely overwhelm, even with guns. But they had to get some sort of defensive post happening so they could hold their territory. And it's, it's well good they did that because late July, Geronimus sends off his first fleet of mutineers to attack the soldiers. So all, all the rafts that have been built in Batavia's graveyards are the ones that the ship's sheriff built for them. Uh, some other ones that the ship's carpenters are surviving ones that haven't been killed and put together. Uh, they all come heading towards High Island, Weber Hayes' island. Um, now the... Let's refer, what, what you refer to them as? So we've got the mutineers, we've got the survivors who are basically the victims being picked mm. off. What, what are we going to call Weber Hayes' guys? Well, Weber Hayes and his group called themselves the Defenders. And that's a good name. that's what they were referred to as in a lot of the subsequent testimony. I'm getting a very like, lost vibe. Sort of like all these different, different groups fighting on all these islands. But uh, anyway, so the Defenders see the mutineers coming. Um, now, Weber Hayes, as well as the forts, he's also built a lot of homemade clubs, uh, crude slingshots as well, a catapult, uh, like a very small catapult, uh, um, is in one of the one of the recordings of this fight. So they kind of bombard the mutineers' rafts with rocks and, and throw things, and they're sort of... What it's a very inconclusive fight. But well, they drive what, they're, what they're aiming to do is basically... They know that for the mutineers to actually storm the island, it's just basically going to be not so much Normandy Beach as just wading through these sort of corally mudlands for an hour or so before they can actually come right up at them. It's so you just sort of crawl be... ashore, you're exhausted, you collapse, yeah. and then someone caves your head in with a, with a slingshot. They, they also hot. know that all they have to do to take these weapons out of the equation is get them wet. So by throwing stones down that splash in the water, they don't even need to hit the mutineers. They just need to get their powder wet, and then the guns become absolutely useless. That's true. So yeah, Geronimus' men, they do have uh, swords, uh, actual steel swords, and they do have guns, but they just don't have a chance to use them. The swords are useless because they can't get close enough, and the guns, pretty useless from a long range and definitely useless when you get them wet. Yeah, if you're hiding behind a fort, it's it's pretty hard to hit you. So I mean, it's kind of a checkmate move. So Geronimus and his mutineers are driven off. Of course, Geronimus isn't actually there. He's just back on Batavia's graveyard waiting for news. So Weber Hayes and the survivors, and the defenders, sorry, they win the first confrontation. Now back on back on Batavia's graveyard, Ger- uh, Geronimus, he's not disheartened by this. Uh, you've got some more murders. He, he tries it again, actually. He, he sends another uh, raiding party out, tries to make it more of a surprise to attack Weber Hayes. They're also driven off on the 5th of August. Uh, meanwhile, there's, there's murders happening happening. Left, right, and centre. One of the murders that's particularly eerie, we won't read out every one because we'd be here all day, one of them that kind of sticks with you is there's this 18-year-old cabin boy called Jan Pelgrim, and he survived the wreck, and ever since then, he has been begging to join the mutineers, and he's been kind of like floating around Geronimus, just like a, a puppy dog, begging to be able to murder someone. It's also said that Geronimus sort of really liked this attention he was getting and used to regale this boy with all these beliefs he had about there being no devil or hell. So Geronimus eventually, just to amuse himself, is kind of frustrated about his two big attacks failing on the other island. So he says, uh, Jan, here is my sword, which you have to try on the net maker to see if it is sharp enough to cut off his head. 
The net maker is another boy. He's only about 16 years old. So Zavank, who's his second in command, hears uh, Geronimus tell this kid to kill this other kid and says, nah, that kid's never going to be able to cut a head off uh, another person. He's way too skinny. He's way too small. Pelgrim, after this, the cabin boy, he starts begging on basically his hands and knees to be able to do it. So they go up to this net maker, the kid, blindfold him. Geronimus says to him, sit nicely, it's just a joke. And after that, they give the sword to a German soldier who takes off his head with one blow. The cabin boy who wasn't allowed to execute him is so upset that he didn't get to kill a person that he was crying for the rest of the day and then saying he would rather kill someone than eat or drink. That's pretty That's pretty full on. Geronimus, we don't know much about him, but like a black hole, he just distorts the environment around him. You see the effect he has on other people, and we can kind of see a bit about his character through that. But about this time, um, after he kills the boy in late August, he's sort of thinking he needs another strategy to take on these defenders who have set themselves up. Yeah, absolutely. So he's still got um yeah, he's still got these these defenders who he's not quite sure how to deal with. So he's kind of he flicks back and forth between aggression and I guess kind of trying to bribe them uh, or trying the to, trying to use his them. kind of manipulation skills on them yeah uh but his manipulation skills so far have consisted of just sending over that note to the french soldiers it was a very lovely note but uh yeah they, they, it, it they was didn't, nice but away it. from him as a person uh his manipulations just lose their effect yeah his charisma doesn't doesn't travel so one thing he does try is uh, on the 1st of september geronimus and some of his followers they visit Hayes' Island. They have this kind of diplomatic parlay on the beach where they don't get too close to each other, but uh, Geronimus, he pr- so all the, all the defenders on this island, their clothes are falling apart because of just exposure to the elements. So Geronimus says, look, I've got all this cloth from the boat. Uh, I'll trade you some cloth in exchange for water. And he kind of sets up this, he tries to set up a trading relationship where he says, look, maybe you have some things that we need and we have some things that you need. Why not just, even though you know we're still settling the political uh, kind of equation here, why don't, why don't we just trade back and forth a little bit and that way we both win? So that's kind of like the first step. But basically, Geronimus, he's got a larger plan in mind. He actually, as Colin's going to tell us, it's not just about the trading kind of parlay relationship he's building. It's just an excuse to well, get the really just, to drop their guards down. Yeah, it's just lulling them into a false sense of security. And it's so obvious that he's doing it. Weber Hayes and his gang of defenders are just kind of gobsmacked at the audacity of Geronimus, just that he thinks that he can fool them. Yeah. Just the, the fact that this guy, who's still dressed up in these half-ragged versions of Pelsart's best clothes. He just comes over dressed, dressed like this war general, obviously a lunatic, and is telling them, you know, it's all just a big misunderstanding. So they're just kind of wondering just how far gone is this guy? Yeah, like he's trying to strike up conversations. So it's like, oh, so how's things on your island? I, yeah. I, I had a guy strangle a baby on my island the other day. You should try it. It's great. Yeah. Um, so on, on the, that was on the 1st of September. He sends over, he, he comes over the first time. On the 2nd of September, he comes over again to try and basically close the snare around them. He's going to try and set up the same situation where they have another parlay. This time, he's going to spring an ambush. But he leaves himself open, though, because he a lot of it, he leaves most of the mutineers behind. He only goes ashore with his chief lieutenant. So that guy, um, Zavank, his second-in-command, the mini-me guy, who's kind of as psychopathic as Geronimus. So it's Geronimus, uh, Zavank, Stonecutter, that guy, Stonecutter the, yeah, the big corporal, gigantic guy. corporal. Also, the guy, uh, the corporal, uh, the other sort of, sorry, company cadet Van Heusen, who uh, Geronimus marries to the priest's daughter, 
So sort of his four chief lieutenants come ashore with Geronimus, and Geronimus is striking up a conversation with Weber Hayes. Meanwhile, his lieutenants are circulating and trying to talk to the defenders one-on-one. So it's kind of very convivial, but uh, basically Geronimus is distracting the defender's leader, Hayes, while his men try and spread dissension in the ranks. Now, what's interesting, though, is Hayes was expecting this. So at a prearranged point during the discussion, Hayes kind of, he makes some sort of signal to his men, and they grab Geronimus and his lieutenants, and they force them to the ground and bind their hands. But uh, so Geronimus, even though he hasn't taken the rest of the mutineers with him, they're sitting on rafts and boats uh, just off the coast watching all this happen. And as soon as they see Geronimus tackled to the ground, they start rowing over. So it's a very tense situation where you've got the leaders of the mutineers are now detained by the defenders, but help is on the way. So Hayes is kind of faced with a bit of a conundrum. For every man that he's got prisoner, he needs to have two men guarding them, and he doesn't have enough men to defend both the island against the attackers and also look after these prisoners. He takes a very practical approach to it. Namely, he has uh, his men cut the throats of Zavank, Van Heusen, and Peters. Uh, but Geronimus he keeps as a hostage. So he basically gags Geronimus, says, no, no more talking, no more trying to convince my people to join you. And then the survivors retreat to their fortifications. And the mutineers, once they see their, their lieutenants die and Geronimus taken away, they kind of lose heart and they turn back. So Geronimus is basically an island jail now. One of those holes that they have on High Island, Hayes throws him in there. And he's still dressed in his finery, but now he's just sitting at the bottom of this pit in this island. They they throw him these dead raw birds to pluck as his new job. And for every, I think, three that he plucks, he gets to keep one for himself. Yeah, so they kind of, they and they crouch by the end of, edge of a limestone pit and kind of joke to him about, you know, his salary was he gets to eat one of these raw birds if he does a really good job with the other raw birds. So it's quite a turnaround. But remember, we've still got a substantial amount of mutineers on Batavia's graveyard. Now, their reaction is they elect a new leader uh, as a professional soldier called Walter Luz. Probably Walter is the best uh, anglicized version of his name. He's a professional soldier. He's quite calm, quite competent. He's taken part in a couple of murders, but at the same time, he seems to be one of the more liberal mutineers. He, he sort of intercedes well, for a couple of what people. What he is is he's more focused. You can tell that he's a mutineer who really is just more about the mutiny. Uh, I mean, the mutineer's original plan of stealing that boat and commandeering it and going off pirating, that's really been kind of lost in Geronimus's regime. Uh, now it's all just about this sadistic torture and slaughter of other people. Walter, we should really have been going with anglicized names Yeah, all let's the just way. go Walter. But, that, yeah. That's so much easier. But old, he's more matter of fact. Yeah, like, yeah, old Walter's like, you know, we've obviously too far gone to sort of go back now so i'm still up for the mutiny but there's really no need to continue to torture these people and rape the women so he puts a stop to the raping of the women he also puts a stop to senseless murder but he's still got his eyes on the prize he still wants to take out weber hayes and the soldiers because he still wants to go off mutineering because he knows that only execution remains afterwards. Yeah, so they're hoping when the rescue vessel comes, there'll be nobody else left to contradict their story. So everything's set up now. We've got Geronimus in the pit, but the mutineers and the defenders both still have armies. And everything finally comes to a head on the 17th of September, when the mutineers make their last foray to attack the high island where the defenders are. This time they bring everything they have. Uh, they're kind of used to the strategy of having rocks hurled at them now. So they've got workarounds for that. And they know that as soon as they make it up onto the actual land and they can start running, it should be really all over for the defenders. Now this time they actually managed to 
fight their way right up to the island. They've learned from their past mistakes, and they're really pressing the defenders. Well, the important thing is they, they learn not to get their guns wet. So they're kind of picking off the defenders who are popping their heads out from standbag forts that they've built out of rock. And uh, it's sort of like a, it's prolonged and drawn out, so it's kind of sniping at them. Now that they're led by a proper soldier, their attack is a lot more militaristic. So they've got this sequence where one will always be firing while the other's reloading. Instead of the sort of hodgepodge, just fire when you're ready, they've got this sequence where they're always continually firing at the defenders as the defenders sort of pop their heads out. They're just slowly whittling away the defenders' numbers, and it's sort of not looking good for Weber Hayes at this stage. until. And this is kind of the bit where it gets completely cinematic. At that very, very moment, Pelsart and the rescue ship sail in over the horizon. The ship starts so coming in towards Just as them. the mutineers have made an entrance onto the island, and it's almost all over for the defenders, that's when the sail pops up. And suddenly, the, the fight itself becomes secondary, because the only thing of importance is who's going to reach this boat first. Yeah, who's going to tell their side of the story first. So I guess uh, at this stage, Weber Hayes, they have built some rough rafts of their own. Um, they haven't really sailed them anywhere, though. So Weber Hayes immediately sends some men, he himself and a couple of men, run down to one side of the island, start unpacking their rafts. Meanwhile, uh, Walter Luz and the other mutineers, they get back on their rafts and start paddling towards the rescue ship. The mutineers, if they actually did try to take over the ship, there might be a good chance of doing it. So Walter Luz and his men... Um, well, actually, it's interesting, though, because Walter doesn't come along. He, he At this stage, he's like, game is up. Uh, he actually lets the other mutineers go out to meet the ship, and then he sort of makes his way back to Batavia's graveyard and, and sort of gives up. He's like, look, it's it, it's done. Uh, meanwhile, the other mutineers are paddling frantically towards Pelsart and the rescue vessel. As they get closer and closer, um, Pelsart, he's sort of looking out. He notes down in his journal later uh, his shock as he sees the mutineers' crude raft come into view. And he's sort of shocked because they're all wearing his clothes. Yeah. The mutineers are all dressed up in all, all the sort of finery that he's left. They're uh, kind of dressed like pirates. It's not, it's not a, and they're holding weapons as well. They're all holding smoking muskets. But it's, the game is up because the, the defenders manage to reach him first. And the defenders board. And as soon as they reach the rescue ship, the Sardam, they tell uh, Pelsart exactly what's going on. Uh, they say there's a bunch of mutineers on this island. They've all got guns. They're going to try and take over this vessel. So Pelsart originally is like, it's probably too much to take in. But as he sees the mutineers come up to his boat and he sees how heavily armed they are, he realizes that they're probably telling the truth. So as the mutineers reach the Sardam, the rescue vessel, just minutes too late, Pelsart calls on them to basically surrender, throw all your guns into the sea. Uh, he points at them, all the guns they do have and the cannon they do have on the ship, all at the boat, and says, basically, the, the game is over. You know, daddy's home. Yeah, daddy's home. So, I mean, if the mutineers, if they could have got their way on board, if they could have sort of, um, if they were the first to get there, first to tell their story, it's possible they would have been let on and then tried to take over. It's a salvage ship. It's not a military ship. They didn't know that a military response was required. Yeah. But uh, they, don't, they don't get the chance to sort of try try a mutiny, and it all kind of fizzles out. So they give up, and uh, Pelsart he immediately sets starts kind of setting order again. So he sort of he grabs Weber Hayes and the loyal soldiers, and with them and the crew of the Sardam, he rows over to Batavia's graveyard. He detains the rest of the mutineers. Walter Luz is surrendered by this stage. He's kind of just sitting in his tent, depressed. So all the mutineers give up, and uh, Pelsart starts detaining them. He also uh, visits Geronimus on Weber Hayes's island. 
and pulls him out of the limestone well in which he's being put. So Pelsart, he's sort of confronted with this situation where he's got all these mutineers and he's got a, he kind of has two choices. One is he can take them back to Batavia and get the, get John Cohen and the courts there to settle it out. But that would involve taking all these violent and bloodthirsty people who've killed about a hundred survivors back on this long, risky ocean voyage. So he sort of decides the best thing to do is actually have the trials here, have the trials on the on the island where the killings happen. He's already also got in trouble once for shirking his official responsibilities by leaving in the first place. So he probably wants to set the record straight and hang around on this tiny outcrop of rocks until he can say, I've done my duty as a representative of the, the, of the VOC. Absolutely. He wants to do it by the books. And as well, uh, on the Sardam, there's a bunch of divers that John Cohen has sent to uh, dive in the wreck of the Batavia and try and recover some of the chests that are in there. So while the divers are recovering uh, the money from the wreck, Pelsant, he sets up a gallows on Batavia's graveyard and he starts taking depositions from the survivors who haven't been killed, from some of the mutineers who turn state's evidence, and also from the defenders. Now, now here's where it takes an interesting turn, because... While Pelsart did want to sort it all out on the island, his method of doing so, these exhaustive trials he sets up, you get the impression of a guy who wants to make sense of it in his own head. He really has these protracted trials, he takes down all of these witness statements, and it must have been just absolutely mind-boggling for this guy to realize that while he thought he left the island in, in safe hands under the guidance of Geronimus, who was his second bureaucrat in charge on the ship who who comported himself pretty well during the journey who was giving these intelligent dinner party conversations who was obviously a smart man to find out what he had actually done on this island uh, would have been staggering and you can see the effects on Pelsard himself like this handwriting is shaky at certain points in his journal when he's, he's sort of taking down records of the worst crimes I mean when he learns Salman de Chomps the clerk who strangled the baby that he was Pelsard's secretary on the ship, and initially, Palsart gets De Chomps to help him with the trials, and then, sort of, as as the trials go on, he realizes, shit, the guy I'm using to write all this down strangled the baby, and is also complicit in all these murders. A lot of it is sorrow, a lot of it is trying to understand what's happened, but there's a bit of anger in there, and it's directed mostly at at Geronimus. So I've got a quote here, and this is from the uh, the priest. He talks about when Palsart and Geronimus meet again. So it says Cornelius was brought in. And he was asked by the commander why through the devil he had denuded himself of all humanity and why he was more evil than if he had been changed into a tiger animal so that he had to let flow so much innocent blood and also has had the intention to do that with us. Whereon, Geronimus said, everything that had been done is not my fault, but David Zavank and Conrad Van Heusen have carried it out and forced me to do it, otherwise I would have to die. So Geronimus tries to blame his subordinates. He says, oh, actually, it was the two lieutenants I had who, was help- who were helping with the murders they're the ones who forced me to do it. I actually didn't kill anybody. I tried to poison a baby once. didn't go so well, but um, my hands are clean. The final tragedy, if you can even call it that in comparison to what's already gone on, is that if any of the survivors or any of the defenders or even any of the mutineers who were pressured into killing wanted any kind of closure from having Geronimus on trial, they're denied it because Geronimus just doesn't admit his own responsibility yeah, he just stonewalls them like he he just gives them yeah there's no there's no closure there there's and, no guilt there's no and, confession and in fact through his through his sort of wheedling attempts to get out of it he reveals that not only has he not only has he not sort of accepted his fate like wow to lose has but in fact he's still got this picture in his mind of 
him surviving this as if it would be the most natural thing of all for him to walk free, as if he couldn't even imagine his own prosecution. And there's a good quote from Pelsar which sums up this sort of staggered frustration that he had. Yeah, I think staggering is the right word. Like Pelsart, he just cannot believe kind of the delusion of Geronimus to think that he can wriggle his way out of it. I looked at him with great sorrow. Such a scoundrel, cause of so many disasters and of the shedding of human blood, besmirched in every way, not only with the abominable misdeeds, but also with damnable heresy. And still, he had the intention to go on. Geronimus is blaming dead people for his crimes as well. He's blaming people who can't speak up in their own defence. Now, uh, the mutineers who do survive, uh, they're waterboarded, and they all tell consistent stories, and the fingers all point towards Geronimus as instigating these murders, and Geronimus is the only person who's saying he's got his own fancy version of the story, and, and nobody is buying it. And, yeah, it's in this, in this stage between sort of getting tortured and then sort of having to go on the stand and confess freely that he just keeps yo-yoing. He drags it out and out, uh, being tortured, then admitting that he was the instigator of all of this uh, murder, and then the next day uh, just completely recanting, just again and again and again, whereas most of the, in fact, all of the other mutineers, uh, they might deny it first, but... A lot of them, after they were tortured and after they did end up confessing freely, they started confessing to more murders. They started yeah. confessing fully as, as the gravity of the situation sank in and they started realizing, I'm going to be executed soon. I want to die with a, a clean conscience. Yeah, and they start thinking about their, their mortal souls. So the priest is taking confessions from all of them, as you mentioned, and they're kind of coming clean because they know they're about to be executed on the island. Whereas uh, Cornelis, who has uh, different religious beliefs, um, he's not, he's just not interested in that. But what he does do, though, as a delaying tactic, he asks to be baptized. Uh, so this is sort of after, finally, Pelsart, during the, the trials, is like, look, we keep torturing you, and you confess, then you recant, but that's enough. We've got enough evidence to convict you of multiple, multiple, multiple murders, 100 murders. So Cornelis says, well, actually, you know what, I've never been baptized. Why don't, why don't we do it now on the island? Pelsart says, okay, great, we'll do it tomorrow. Uh, and Cornelis doesn't take well to that. This is from Pelsart's journal. He says, uh, Cornelis began to rage, saying, I see, they want my blood and my life, but God will not suffer that I shall die a shameful death. I know for certain, and you will all see it, that God will perform unto me this night a miracle, so that I shall not be hanged. That was his tune all day. At night he secretly ate something, with which he thought to poison himself, for it started to work about one hour in the morning, so that he was full of pain and seemed like to die. In this great anxiety, he asked for some medicine. After taking medicine, he began to get some relief, because apparently it had not been strong enough, the poison had not been strong enough. But he had to be got out of his prison 20 times during the night, because his so-called miracle was working from below as well as from above. So, so basically, this is his second botched poisoning. This time, he's tried to kill himself to deny the survivors any ounce of closure they'd get with an official execution. So just end up vomiting it all out in the end and then yeah, begging for medicine. And it's, it's such a fitting fate that he would eventually fail once again as an apothecary and it would cause him some kind of physical suffering before the executions began. So Cornelizun is eventually sentenced to death along with a lot of the other mutineers. Uh, his punishment involves prior to hanging the amputation of both of his hands, the gallows being, well, the gallows and Weber Hayes' forts being the first sort of European structures, not on the Australian mainland, but in Australian territory. I'm going to count it. I think it's close enough. I think it, I mean, there, there were forts. It wasn't like just a single bunch of bricks on each other. It was, it was a full, full-scale fort. 
Um, and also at this time, so there's, there's the executions of the mutineers. A couple of people are sentenced to be keelhauled, including Dechamps, the baby strangling clerk. Mm. And then finally, uh, they saved one other punishment for two mutineers. This is interesting. So you remember before Kyle was mentioning the uh, the homicidal cabin boy, John Pelgrim, who used to be- he would beg Geronimus to take part in the murders, and uh, all the other mutineers would say, "No, look, you're, you're too small. Come come back in a couple of years where you've grown up." Uh, him and Walter lose. Uh, Pelsan actually takes pity on them. Uh, he takes pity on uh, Walter because of a few things. One is stop the rape of the women on Batavia's graveyard. There were no more murders committed, uh, senseless murders after he replaced Geronimus as a mutineer's leader. Uh, he confessed freely to all his crimes, and he didn't attempt to hijack the, the rescue vessel that Pelsart came on. So him and also John Pelgrim, who was 17 at the time. John Pelgrim was originally sentenced to death, but in one more display of begging, this time for his own life instead of the chance to kill others, he manages to talk his way out of it. Uh, well, in such a pitiful, pathetic display that Pelsart ends up sort of granting him his wish for life. Mm. And the penalty that he does decide on is he will maroon both of them on the Australian mainland. And he also gives them instructions that should they come across any native people, they should attempt to befriend them. And he gives them some mirrors and glassware and trinkets that they can use to trade, hopefully, for their lives. And that's still a mystery that lingers to this day. We don't know whether they managed to integrate themselves with the Aboriginal population. What we do know is that these two mutineers uh, were among Australia's first known white inhabitants. Absolutely. And, I mean, Pelsart knew it wasn't an uninhabited continent. He'd seen smoke signals, uh, he, uh, sorry, smoke from kind of Aboriginal campfires. He knew there was something there. Uh, and so his idea was, look, if you guys survive, you might be able to come back with some useful intelligence for the company. Again, his kind of humanitarian side comes through where he pretty much says, look, this is a reprieve. This is a chance for you to make a new life on this mystery continent. And should one day you want to come back, you'll be welcome with open arms. But in the meantime, here are some survival tips. So that's really the end of Geronimus's story. And it's also really the end for all of our other characters, with, with one notable exception. Everyone involved in the story of the Batavia, almost as if it was cursed, really. None of them ever really fully recover. Well, let's, let's go through the death toll. I mean, uh, on the way back to Batavia, uh, John Cohen, the terrifying governor, he uh, dies suddenly, probably due to a cholera outbreak, during a siege of, uh, of another city. So he's dead. Uh, Geronimus is dead. Uh, Jacobs is in a hole in prison in Batavia. Does he survive long? Because he's a hardy kind of guy. We don't know for certain what happened to Jacobs after he was thrown in prison, but in all likelihood, that's where he died as well. Weber Hayes is promoted several times. Actually, him and Lucretia picked out the, the hero and heroine of the story. So it's kind of Weber Hayes is it's sort of this ordinary soldier who went above and beyond. They get several promotions, and uh, Lucretia is kind of hailed as this uh, it's kind of someone who retained their virtue during really trying circumstances. Poisson, on the other hand, th- this terminates his career, and um, he dies of fever. In um, He finally succumbed to the illness that had really been yeah. nipping at his heels since India. And that's in 1630. So no one, not the sailors or soldiers on the ship, and not the people in command, really ever lived past the wreck of the Batavia, with the exception of Lucretia Yarns and uh, Weber Hayes. But the wreck did echo... Oh, also, I'll just interrupt that. Weber Hayes dies pretty soon after. He gets promoted, but yeah, he, he dies. <laughs> Everyone dies. This is a horrible story. This is so depressing. The only survivor is really Lucretia Yarns, and that's that, that word really expresses pretty much everything we know about her. But for better or worse, we can really point to it as Australia's bloody baptism. It is our first recorded 
white inhabitants from Europe. It is the first sort of dalliance that the European powers have with this country. And it, it does put European men on this country for the first time, building some of our first, earliest structures. Uh, the fact that they were a gallows and fortifications kind of does set the way for what came next. So, uh, as Carl said, despite all the, the blood and tears, we hope you've enjoyed this week's episode, and uh, we'll see you next week. Next episode on Last Up to Nowhere. What happens when 200 idealists, called the misfits, failures and malcontents from the left wing of Australia, leave our shores to found a socialist utopia in Paraguay in the 19th century? We get the failed nation of New Australia. Leadership struggles, clashes with the natives and vicious infighting over their hottest political issue, the prohibition of alcohol. See you next time. Last Stop to Nowhere is a hook turn production recorded at Float in Melbourne, just north of the river. You can find more great podcasts or get in touch with this show by visiting hookturn.com.au. Hook turn! Ding, ding! <laughs>